Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihera Zazan. The image of starving Yemeni children have become the face of the brutal Saudi-led U.S.-supported war against Yemen. This week, we speak with Hossein Mohsen, co-founder of Yemen Relief Project, about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and what's being done to bring some relief to the war-stricken country. Later in the program, Syrian filmmaker Talal Derki speaks about his award-winning film of Fathers of Sons. The war in Yemen has been described as the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Since the Saudi-led military attack on Yemen began three years ago, millions of Yemenis have lost their homes, their jobs, and their loved ones. According to the UN, the war has pushed tens of millions of people to the brink of famine. Here are some deeply shocking statistics about Yemen, a country of 28 million people. Almost 8.5 million people depend on food aid, and that could rise to more than 12 million. Tens of thousands of people have been killed. No one knows exactly how many. Nearly half a million Yemeni kids are chronically malnourished. Many are likely to die within the next few months if this war continues. And the country has been hit with a cholera epidemic. 13,000 cases were reported in October alone. Hossein Mohsen is co-founder of Yemen Relief Project, a charitable organization that works to provide humanitarian relief while improving the overall quality of life in underserved communities in Yemen. I spoke with Hossein and asked him about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and the challenges of delivering food and much-needed medicine there despite the Saudi blockade. This issue of people suffering from poverty and malnutrition and potentially leading up to death didn't happen all at once. And I think that the average person in Yemen didn't realize it was even happening. I'll just share with you a little bit about what I've seen in Yemen from an average family that may not had a great life before the war, but it got extremely worse as the war started and continued to happen. Food became less and less available to them. People ate less. Their weights begin to drop significantly. And then you have a cholera epidemic that sweeps through. So you're having an individual that's already suffering from malnutrition. Eventually, that leads to illnesses, that leads to being more susceptible to a disease like cholera. And eventually, that could lead to death. It doesn't happen overnight, but it definitely, in a span of three years, you're going to see more of it. And, and it just really depends on where you were at before the war, where you're at now, and how affected you are by resources not being, being readily available. I can give you an example of, of the neighbor of, of, of one of my uncles when I visited. It was a poor family before the war, and the war happened, and their 13, 14-year-old, because age isn't really monitored as closely as it is here. So 13 years old, Family doesn't have food, so he has to go out and go out to war, out to fight. And you're having a 13-year-old patrol a post somewhere. Mom doesn't know where he's at. Dad doesn't know where he's at other than he's bringing some money, some small amount of money home. He dies. 
So now mom and dad have to decide, do we send out the second son that we have to war? But we need to eat. We need food. We need to feed the rest of our family. And the only useful job right now may be to be a part of of patrolling some post that they may not even know what they're patrolling for. You know, when the basic essentials are being deprived for whatever reason, people will work for whatever. They'll, They'll do whatever for food. And it's unfortunate. Before the interview, you told me that there are 3 million Yemenis who are internally displaced. Yes, so Tiz is one that just jumps out at me. Tiz has been an area that has had a lot of fighting over the last few years, since the beginning of the war, just because of the area it's in, its, it's proximity to other cities and whatnot. But because of that war for so long, people have moved out. People were forced out of their homes, and, and they were forced out of their communities and to voyage to, any, to a, a bigger city, be foreign to a bigger city. So... It's, it would be as if somebody from rural Northern California moved into mid-San Francisco living on the street. They went to Sana'a? Sana'a. Sana'a was the city that uh, has more resources, and it's known to be uh, more open to anybody from any village. It's just something that it was, people were comfortable to move into. But I also read that in Sana'a, the cost of food is soaring. Absolutely. And the government employees have not been paid for many, many, many months. So even in Sana'a, there is a large uh, segment of the population that cannot afford food, and they don't have access to health care. Yeah. The doctors that we were working with last year were, had, hadn't been paid for over a year, year and a half. I've still communicated with them. They said they gotten some pay equivalent to a half a month pay from a year of work. So it just shows you that people are basically still working but mostly just for free because this individual is telling me that, you know, we're a doctor. We're doing this profession because we believe in what we do. So we're just not going to walk away and say, hey, because we're not getting paid, we're not going to serve this community. So which areas of Yemen are most affected by hindered access to food, medicine, and clean water? The outskirts are the most affected. You know, the areas out, outside of Hadeide, outside of, of Te'ez, of especially the areas in between the two conflicted areas, the north and the south, the, those mm. bordering uh, cities. Because the south and southeast is under the control of Saudi Arabia's supported Hadi government, who has established a temporary home in the southern city of Aden. Houthis control the north and the northwest of the country, which includes the airport in San'a and also the capital. Well, I mean, the airport is non-existent. Yeah. So it's, it's been shut down since almost the beginning of the war. So yeah. it's really the port that the North has control over. And, and so still, what's being brought into the port? So the most affected areas are the ruler areas? The ruler areas in the North near Hadid are affected. And that, that's where I witnessed a lot of poverty. And, and like I said, it was because resources weren't being distributed out there. They're too far out or... There were need for those resources more in the city. So, you know, obviously if the port's near a major city, they're going to provide those resources there and then move outwards from that from that position. But there was also talk I mean, they had, that they were strategically distributing resources. So, Who is I, they? I, when we went to these areas, the complaints of those citizens of those areas saying, hey, we're not getting food, mm-hmm. that... There's food out there, but we don't get it out to the areas that we were living in. And that was, that was intentional. 
I don't know how much truth to that is just because when you're probably when you're starving, there's there's got to be some anger that has to reside in a person saying, hey, why are we starving? Why isn't everybody else starving just like us to find uh, find anybody that, that needed us that help? I mean, to me, even myself, as I was walking through the streets of Yemen, it, I felt bad to have even a, a dollar in my hand seeing so many people hungry and needing help. So I would literally be walking out of the, the place I was living at and then just going, and as, as many people I can touch, you, you'd want to provide help. You felt bad. You felt guilty for going home and having some resources that you, couldn't, you, didn't, you didn't distribute. What has been the impact of the Saudi blockade of the port cities and entry points to Yemen? So an average family today, I mean, considering keeping one constant, if they haven't been displaced because of war, then they have a network of family and friends and uh, relatives that they can reach out and, and work together to kind of bridge these gaps that they have. Whether if, if, it's, if it's no food, then maybe one would have some to share. If it's labor, maybe they can trade. That's kind of the relationship in the small towns and villages when I was there I saw. So it was not as bad as the people that are displaced because of war and they're finding themselves in a big city or in a foreign town that they don't have close connections or families because this is a country that's really family-oriented. It's, it's a tribal, a very close family traditions. It really lives its life based on that. I think we, we get sucked into religion as being a, a way of life, but culture, culture is, is a big way of life for Yemen, and their traditions are very rooted in a big part of their, their existence. I think that's why, for the most part, even though there, there's, it's a horrible situation in Yemen, they're still able to make it because I think that uh, we are resilient. We, we come from a traditional, really strong, resilient family. So. Parts of the country, for example, Sa'ada, a governate in northwestern part of Yemen, it has been bombed so many times uh, by Saudi Arabia and its allies that nothing is left of that place. Schools, hospitals, universities, bookshops, homes, agricultural land, and people have been forced to just leave those places. I read that they live in barren spaces. No food is getting to them. Yeah, it's it's a deeper problem. You know, when you're talking about children not going to school, what we would see is okay, maybe it's a few days, but it's not a few days. It's a few years, mm-hmm. and that's a, a gap that they're not they're not meeting. When they're not getting their education, then how do you expect them to be, you know, a profound part of the community to to support and help? They're, they're basically getting their basic needs met as far as food and shelter and and healthcare. Th- these issues are systematic. Your organization has been raising money to buy necessary supplies to send to Yemen. Are there any restrictions of what you can send? Tell us a bit about your own work. Yes, we're a small organization that's based out of Berkeley, California. It's a group of students and professionals that had the same question in, in their minds, in the forefront of their minds was, what can we do to help in Yemen? You know, We kind of got tired of, of looking through the Facebook posts of you know, these tragic pictures of, of the situation in Yemen and the hunger and whatnot. We want to kind of figure out a way for us to support those people there and to show them that, hey, we're here in solidarity. We're here. We have your backs in whatever capacity that we can. So that's kind of the origin of this organization. But our first thought idea was, hey, you know, these people are lacking food. So why don't we 
get a group of volunteers and individuals that have kind of like-minded thinking and, and, and really raise some money and purchase some mana nutrition packets, which is a therapeutic packet that you know, children can take that are suffering from malnutrition. It seemed like a great idea. We put you know, our minds and our thoughts and our energy together and was able to successfully send that to Yemen. So it just, you know, just shares this like-minded thinking that we can do it if we put our hearts and minds together. Mm-hmm. It's really a drop in a bucket to what they need. I mean, obviously, we're not trying to replace what the state is required to do, which is to protect, serve, and, and provide these essential resources. But we wanted to show that if you really have an intent to help people, and that's your goal, that you can do it, that you're capable, and one person can make a big impact, and a group of us can make a bigger impact. So, uh, so what sort of packages do you send to Yemen? Now we're, we're not focused on the malnutrition packages. Obviously, there's other organizations that provide those types of things. It went transitioned into the cholera epidemic, what's going on there, because it, that was a horrible thing that I, I witnessed while I visited Yemen. And we realized that we need to help in other ways. It just, it just can't be a one-dimensional way of helping Yemen. You know, you have to really show people in the U.S., show solidarity with other organizations that are suffering from similar, you know, humanitarian crises around the world, that we, we share that with other people, but more so that we don't want this to fly under the radar, mm-hmm. that just because it's been traditionally, you know, Yemen's been traditionally a, a country that they're not oil-rich country, they're not... There isn't anything in, in quote-unquote cool to look at or, or where we feel like we can relate to. But for us as Yemeni Americans, we relate very much to that. And we see the humanitarian side of it. And we want to share that with others that, hey, that we are the same as everybody else and we care and we function and we're smart and we're, you know, all these things that everybody else are experiencing. But for some reason, the world looks at it in a different way. Hmm. What are you doing to help alleviate this um, cholera epidemic, Yemen? So our second campaign was to provide a small donation to people that need uh, medicine for cholera. So cholera is, is, is uh, something that's easily can be easily dealt with, uh, with the proper medication, the proper uh, treatment plan. And we just didn't want people to be suffering from cholera and feel like that they can't afford the medicine that's t- needed to overcome this this disease. So we wanted to, to tap into that, and we were able to contact a few hospitals in Yemen and provide the medicine that, that patients needed, basically pay for their medicine while uh, they were in the hospital. During that time, there was no what we would consider here as waste management operating. So the, their garbage services were basically shut down. What are some of the challenges that you are faced with? I mean, like any other war zone, I think you have the same sort of like issues that trust, making sure that your work is respected in the space that you're in. Like, I think that's one thing that we've we've always wanted to hold true, that we're actually serving their needs, not just our needs uh, here. You know, this is this is really for them that, to support them to be an advocate to keep the, the the conversation going about what's going on in Yemen. So, really being true to that, I think that's what differentiates. I think us as a smaller grassroots organization that's that are Yemeni Americans, we can relate to the people that are suffering there in a different way than a, a bigger organization that probably can do more physical work in Yemen, such as you know Doctors Without Borders. Or for us, it's it's really key strategic impactful uh, connections with people Mm. that hopefully can really change people's minds about what's going on in Yemen and allow it to be something that's less looked at 
as a foreign thing, but as something that's really that affects everybody. We talk about climate change and global warming and all these issues and, and, and how it affects humanity as a whole. But what's going on in Yemen today will also ha- affect humanity as a whole in a different way. You know, the impacts that, that people suffer you know, displaces a certain energy that we will all be affected by somehow and somewhere. Yeah, and the fact that we see more states using starvation as a weapon of war. Bashar al-Assad used it in uh, Syria. It's been used in Yemen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's really, it's, it's a mechanism to, in warfare now in the current 2018. This is, this is one tool that's being used. And it's, it's unfortunate that the suffering of, of innocent people that probably have no idea what's going on are affected. And you really have to say, hey, when is the world going to look at what's going on in, in Yemen as not only a crisis to the Yemeni people, but a crisis to humanity in, in itself, because it should not be allowed and it, it should be seen as, as, as a, a crime, because there's no reason for us in 2018 to see people starving to death day in and day out in Yemen. It can't be watched in, during our era. You know, we should, we should definitely hold ourselves accountable and saying, hey, mm. enough's enough. In the aftermath of the Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi's murder, we have seen more images of Yemeni kids suffering from malnutrition and more criticism of, of Saudi Arabia and its ambitions in Yemen. Are you hopeful that with Yemen getting a bit more attention now, that something might be done to to end this war? I mean, I think that we all wish that this war ends. I think we all wish that the situation in Yemen or across the world gets better. But it also it all really comes down to us mm-hmm. as an individual. Like how are we, how do we see, you know, starvation in this magnitude? And how do we what would we do about that? I mean, it's I don't want to p- point at any one person, but it's really our responsible, our personal resol- responsibility to make a difference in how we want to see what's going on, and, and, and that's our actions afterwards. Once we see and feel uh, connected to people in Yemen or connected to people that are suffering anywhere in the world, mm. we can, we'll make a change in how we want to uh, approach it. And, and if, it's that, if that means you know, changing the way we vote or writing a, you know, an important person that has an influential decision, then it's, it's those types of things. But it's, it's not going to happen in a one-dimensional way. There's got to be a multiple, multiple way of looking at how we're going to change things. Mm. So, Hussein, before we end, just uh, let us know, how can people help, people who are listening to this show now? Really look and identify what are these issues that are going on and why are we allowing people to starve in 2018 when we have enough food to feed every single person on this planet multiple times over? These are the type of questions that you have to ask yourself. And when you figure that out for yourself... You'll understand where to, where to invest in, where you invest your time, your energy, your resources. I mean, we'd love to say, yeah, donate to our organization, which we're happy to take any donation, and it's going to go to a, something, a good cause. You know, 100% of our donations go directly to the people that, we, that are affected in Yemen. That's not the only solution. You know, you really have to sit down, and, and education has to be a big part of this. Since we're talking about this, why don't you give us your website? Thank you. Yeah, it's YemenReliefProject.org, and we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Hossein Mohsen is co-founder of Yemen Relief Project, a charitable organization working to provide humanitarian relief while improving the overall quality of life in underserved communities in Yemen. 
To learn more about Yemen Relief Project, please visit their website, YemenReliefProject.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. the award-winning Syrian filmmaker Talal Derki returned to his homeland to explore what had happened to his country through the lens of an Islamist family's experience. Abu Osama, a father of eight kids and a member of al-Nusra, the Syrian arm of al-Qaeda, and his relationship with his sons, who he hopes one day would follow his path to become jihadi fighters, are the subject of this film. Derki attempts to understand what makes people turn radical and what drives them to live under the unforgiving rules of a so-called Islamic State. I left Syria at the end of 2012 in order to edit my previous film, Return to Homes. So I went first to Cairo in Egypt. Then after that, uh, we do the selecting. That period, uh, the producer, Orwan Arabia, was uh, captured, get arrested by the government. And before of him, like the cameraman, a week before, get arrested. Not the cameraman, one of the main character. In Homs. In Homs, yeah. Well, I was in Egypt one week before the producer. And I start selecting uh, the footage there, spend like three months. Then uh, I went back to Lebanon. And from, from Lebanon, I spent like a few months. But from Lebanon, I, I crossed the border again to Syria, illegally. I went to Homs and I filmed the last block. And then uh, with the whole footage and the selecting material, we went to Berlin, 1st of June, to start the editing, 2013. So the first time that you left Damascus, you went to Egypt? The Syrian uprising started in March 2011. And you left? I left after one and a half year. I was working all this period from inside, like in the center of Damascus, secretly. We're living in the center of the Damascus, uh, my home in the center, my flat. Very risky to walk, to be an activist because not only making films, we were like a group of anonymous cameramen and we were covering everything happen in different cities because the media wasn't allowed to cover or to work in Syria. The regime mm-hmm. asked everybody to leave. And he didn't give permissions to any channel or any media to, to shoot or to tell what's going. So we was doing this secretly, filming with a high resolution. I trained a lot of cameramans there. 
So and you were traveling around the country as well? Around the countries, mm-hmm. uh, different cities during this period. Homes mostly like in the south to Dara, where the revolution start, and then to the north to Kamishlo, the Kurdish mm-hmm. area, and then to Idlib, to Aleppo, to different cities, almost everywhere. We were like around 12, 15, we, we can say 15 person worked, and we transferred the footage full HD by hand from Syria to Lebanon. It's, it's a dictatorship and they control everything. Yeah. If you want to upload heavy issue in that time, they would notice you. So the only way was by... So you my, delivered my, my it wife, to... Uh, my wife was doing this. She was also like pregnant and she was also doing some preparation. She was writing also stories and she was transferred this every week to Lebanon. So it's four hours ago and four hours And back. who did you give it to? Reuters mostly. Then we gave to CNN. We gave to Al Arabiya Channel. We gave to other people upon uh, request. At what point you decided it was time for you and your family to leave Syria? It wasn't, it wasn't my decision. I was really sad because I had the feeling that it's going to be end soon. And I want to be witness for this moment instead of sitting in a closing editing room and edit the film. So. So I was crying very hard, like, I don't want to leave. That was August, and I was telling the producer, I don't want to leave, I want to continue, I want to be here. The beautiful moments still not coming. And then we said, no, we have to deliver the film, we have to go. And that's how it happened. After I left and they arrest or, or the producer, they arrest the, one of the characters, start to be really very risky for me to go and they start to terminate like to kill all of those who arrested mm. not just to catch them for a while then they release them no they become very brutal and they're very very selfish with the, with the people because tens of thousands of people were arrested and uh, many have disappeared nobody know where they are we know that they get killed under torture. So, but uh, but how and where is the body? So this is uh, this is. It was a moment when when things become very chaotic, and I thought staying in the center of the regime because mm. the Damascus was in his hand, staying in this region, it's a suicide mm. because we will you will be an easy target. They can easily learn about you, or just if they have a doubt, a little doubt, they can. Uh, investigating you, arresting you, with no, and it can be take very long. But you risked your life on specifically two occasions, and you went back home to try to document, mm. to try to find out what happened to your country, to mm. understand both the physical destruction and also why has it been taken over by these extremists. I mean, they, I had uh, many questions in my head when I went back, because also in in, in my previous film, Return to Homes, it was more hysterical, telling what is going about the city. It didn't go deeply in the roots of violence and and what's happened. I met people similar to my main character in Homes, but the style of the film was totally different, and I couldn't really focus about this. So I was just uh, looking at at this two different uh, transferring a uh, local people who are against violence who don't want to be barred with anyone 
even with the Assad or with the opposition, they decide to leave. And all those foreigner fighters and all of those jihadists, they came. So mm. it was like, it was these two directions that the local people, they leave their homelands. They don't know when they are back. And the criminals, they are coming. I feel a little bit guilty and I know that I still have access there. I need to know how it's happened to be a radicalism. What is the roots? How a person become become a jihadist. And so brutal. Brutal. And also about brainwashing. So let's talk about your film. For more than two years, you lived with the family of Al-Suri. Abu Sam Al-Suri. This is how they named. He's an Al-Nusra fighter in a small village in the Idlib province. Actually, Al-Qaeda mostly, let's say. He worked with Al-Nusra for a few years. Then he moved to other radical groups, similar, more fanatic. Than but he doesn't make that distinction. These groups have a splintered and have they rebranded themselves. But he identifies himself as an al-Nusra in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you said, I wanted to penetrate the psychology and the emotions of this war, understand what made people radicalize and what drives them to live under the strict rules of an Islamic state. I wanted to establish a direct relationship between the protagonist and the audience and take my audience with me on a personal journey through a devastated country and a troubled society looking for answers to my desperate questions about the future of my country and the future of new generations who grew up there. So you go there, you live with Abu Osama's family uh, for two years. So tell us how that journey began. What did you need to do to prepare mm-hmm. to go to the Idlib province, to mm-hmm. that place? How did you pick that place? How did you pick him and that this family? Is, this is the area where all was unit there, like the gathering in that region, like Aleppo, Idlib, uh, Hamas. So even like where ISIS start, it's a start from there. Start the research end 2013. Oh. And we found the family in uh, April 2014. So in the beginning, I I found the person. I start filming with him in uh, in February. And How did you find him? Not this, uh, oh. this uh, other other leader in other uh, radical group. And and I present myself as a moderate Muslim. Didn't they ask you what when you were I doing there with a camera. No, they know me because I was well known because of my previous film, because of my work, because of teaching people how to use camera and all of this. So, so they they know me. I have many people, many access there. So I was fine. Like I, it was very easy to find my way there. But the main character, the first character, I was filmed with him. He get killed later by ISIS. But when I start after like one week filming with him, he asked to stop the shooting. Not directly, but he just disappeared, give me an appointment and not coming. And because he want me to pray, he want me to do exactly like them. He didn't like the word moderate Muslim. He said there is no moderate Muslim. There is Islam as like Muhammad period. Muhammad time or there is no Islam. This all of this thing that happened in all the Arab countries, this is not Islam. 
Abu Osama did not even. Um, and this is why I decide. Mm. Really, I I understand. I recognize that there's no dialogue. Yeah. So you have to be exactly like them, so they will accept you, and uh, this is how you can save your head. At some point during the film, Abu Osama does not even consider ISIS as credible Muslim. He considers them as disobedient. He disobedient. calls himself mm. the Anusra as mm. the obedient, yeah, uh, obedient son. sons of the Prophet. The opening shot of your film mm. um, shows kids. Yeah. playing soccer it's a dreamy moment the sun is setting mm. it's quiet you mm. see the destruction but it's still motion. you don't see the whole landscape mm. and the film ends with some of the kids yeah, loaded so. up in a pickup truck mm. going to the battlefield yeah was that a conscious decision on your part to start and then end the film like that and what did you want to say kids play such a central role in this film I was telling a story about capturing your nightmares. A story of my father when he used to ask me to write my nightmares on a piece of paper. So you move it from unconscious to conscious. It's also a time when I had hunted by many bad dreams and ugly dreams. And they start to appear like the radical uh, jihadist people I know. They start to appear in my dreams. I didn't have a direct clash with them before because we really, like in Damascus, we live in an area where we had a life like open. We can do mostly things you can do as a freedom part, not in the political side. You just refresh your dreams and try to to get rid of the nightmares out of it and look at those kids as they are really. Look at them. They are really normal kids. They are playing their footballs. They are hugging each other. They are full of energy, full of life. They can be different. You look at them and they are really normal, innocent kids. Slowly, slowly the image and the life and the training and the pressure over them uh, take them to the dark side. But not fully. Not, mm. They still have those childlike moments. Yeah, yeah. Until the until the end, like they until are still the playing with it. This is actually like also dealing with the guns and weapons. It's kind of games for them. I don't give reason, but for us, when we were kids, we was running for like any cousins who have a gun who want mm. to hunt, and we want to f- go for hunting with him, and they take it as a game. Your film, it's considered a war documentary. But you do not show dead bodies. No. You do do not have battlefield scenes. No. What you show is how war not only has physically destroyed Syria, but it has normalized violence in such a way that it has become part of casual conversation between Abu Osama and mm-hmm. his sons yeah. and his other yeah, extremists. Yeah, the, the war as a legacy. Children and behind the scene, what's happening in the closing room, psychologically and the trauma, how the war affected lives of people so and the education. Because you show scenes of children beheading birds to imitate their father, Osama. He's the the biggest hero. My purpose was to show the real face of the man authority, like the father who controlled his family and want his kids to be exactly a copy of what he dreamed them to be. We talk about generations. They are not only this family, by the way, it's all of 
those countries. They told you what to speak. They told you where to love, when you have to love, where not. His name, from the moment he born, he named him Osama because he's in love with Osama bin Laden and he wants him to be a junior Osama bin Laden. For a kid who born in 2003, all his memory connected to a war. And he have a radical father. All the society around him changed from moderate Sufi to a Salafist. Even if he had a chance to have a normal future, they, they kill it. Hmm. Those, those people, they don't have choice. And we talk about this type, this, uh, this sort of jihadist. Since they're born, they only know war. So they are like blunt. What they ask them to do, they obey. They are obedient. They are the best killer. They don't have mercy, and they, by looking at those kids, by the, the looking about their future, you can understand that the upcoming years is also bad. Children, although they are innocent, and you look at them and how they are transfer to be uh, a jihadist. This is very, it's very hard. So, what was it like witnessing those interactions, hearing those conversations? For two years. It's bad experience because for me, I have to to play this role all the time, 24 hours. Even when I'm, when I like, uh, when we stop the shooting and we make a break, I go to Berlin and start to edit. Because during these two years, two and a half, half of the time we were in Syria, stand by with the camera. And half of the time I was in, uh, the cameraman was in Turkey, I was in uh, I was in Germany. You have to keep the balance. Nobody allowed to film me like when I'm party, for example, when I'm drinking alcohol at all. You erase you, your social media. All of it. And this is like was the most fearing all the time that maybe they will learn about me. Maybe they learn that my wife, for example, before we married was wearing hijab. Now not anymore. After we married, she get rid of it. And because it wasn't allowed for her to do it until she can marry a person who are open-minded. Many informations about mm. me, my background, can bring me a dangerous or chat or something they can figure out, like email, something. They can put me in a real danger. There are moments in the film when you are sitting with these kids, with Ayman and with Osama, and mm. you're asking them questions. Yes. How did you see them change over the two years that you were filming them? They're just growing up, going more to the, this like Sharia military camps. Mm. For many families, this is the alternative solution for kids to learn. Because they said, when we were kids, we didn't have a chance to learn the right jihad and we couldn't learn how to use weapons. Now it's a time for our children to get this gift. And they have to be prepared, like, because they believe in caliphate. They believe that the caliphate is coming. They want all of those people to be soldiers in this caliphate. So he might dreaming that he, he can be side by side with his children in the, big, in the last battle, what they call it like. And they go through a complete military training. Mm -hmm. The 13-year-old Osama and the 12-year-old Ayman, they both enlist in the military camp. And yeah. they are also given combat uniforms, weapons. It's sell it there. They have, they where, where do they get them from? From the where same cities. They, they sell it there, all this but uniform, this Afghanian-like uh, military uniform. 
all those jihadists they brought this uh, all the areas changed quickly like in the time since the, those foreigner fighter came and those like Abu Ghraib prison and Sednaya prison was mm. was empty from all those criminals and we talk about thousands of thousands of criminals they released plus thousands of thousands those who crossed the border between Turkey and Syria So and Iraq and Syria. And Iraq and Syria, yeah, those two countries. Abu Osama was radicalized in uh, Sednaya, yeah. and he was released after the uprising. Yes. The, I can be sure who advised the Assad regime to do this, that just to re- release all those jihadists, and then it's become chaos. They will find money because they are experienced more than normal people. And suddenly, like, we were in the street, you were listening uh, to revolution songs. Suddenly, nobody put these songs, and uh, instead, they put jihadist songs. So during the two years mm-hmm. that you spent with this family, did you ask them about where their funding was coming from, where they were getting their weapons No, from? that was not the direction of the film. It's not an investigating film about from where they get financing and where they bring their weapons. If you ask me now, they take all the most of the weapons that went to the opposition, like from, uh, from Europe, from America, they stole it. They killed all those uh, moderate free Syrian army, those group who they, uh, they were fighting for freedom, for example, they, they managed to, to store their weapons. And they got power of this by many countries. They get the green line to do that from a neighbor country. One Officially, I'm sure 100% about what's happened. How all those moderate group of fighters who was fighting for changing the dictatorship to better one, they end up and they, 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 they get killed and, and what happened to their weapons. I, I witnessed it like day yeah. by day, not only in the north of Syria. There was a program mm. to end the moderate opposition and to replace it with the radicalism. There was a scene in the film that was very difficult for me to watch. And that was when these Al-Ghada extremists, they captured those soldiers, yeah, young this, men. Yeah, this is in the main prison of Al-Nusra. Yeah. yeah. And you zoom in on the faces of mm-hmm. these young men that, of course, we don't know what happens to them. I know what's happened to them. Can you talk about what you were thinking and what was it emotionally like for you to shoot this scene? Because these young kids, they were scared, they were shaking, they were crying. Yeah, I mean, tell you something like uh, the prison scene. Those are soldiers, mostly or fighters, belong to Assad, to the government army. And they are like young people, actually, mostly. And for me, I didn't know what's like. They asked me, we want you now to join us. They came to a place where I'm staying. And they asked me to bring the cameras with me. And I went there. Until I reach the place, I understand that, oh my God, I'm in the center, in the center prison of Al-Nusra, where it's not allowed to anyone to film. And they brought me to film there. So they want to f- make uh, like uh, some videos for those people. And I released a copy for them, but I was in the same time. Mm. We had the big camera and I have the small camera. So I used the small camera to zoom to those prisoners, to look at their face and understand the war really. Like it can remind you of the Holocaust, of the, the genocide that happened during the Second World War and after. So it still exists, the, 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 the brutal 
inside us still eating others lives of others people and it still happen and they don't they are there hopeless they don't have any anything to do except they try to please to beg for the prisoner for the gardens to release them so you look at the abu sama there the one who used to be a prisoners all his tragedy about the time when he were in a prison of, of the trade him yeah. in the asset prison now he become a garden in the prison yeah, like he's he become an executioner. a jailer, executioner and he invests those people you see this this is war game like to be your enemy so what happened to those young men they get killed the week after mostly except of three or four of them they released and the other they get killed and this is the problem i was filming them and i was as my chef i was looking as a jihadist uh, how i survived mm. and jihadist with a camera and they was looking at me in a scary way they thought that i am the one who can release them and they tried to ask me please we are innocent we don't have anything and and i couldn't say any word to them and if i made any simple mistake i would be on the ground that gonna get killed and nobody learn about me this scene is to remember that they are people innocent they deserve to be alive they are get killed in black rooms where no camera can film mm-hmm. but i just was mm-hmm. lucky to show their face to the people to tell that those people they get killed by uh, al-qaeda when you were taken to that courtyard yeah did you have second thoughts whether you should film these young men it wasn't in my schedule this thing happened to you when do when you do documentaries you get a gifts like something happened mm-hmm. suddenly and you have to be ready for this moment and i was this is the direction i don't want to see violence all the videos that isis release you don't about killing when they kill their enemies execute their enemies they don't see the face of the victims you don't feel him and i want to do the opposite like to go very deep in their eyes if they ask me they didn't ask me to film their execute i will never do it mm. so i was there a moment before they get killed so even if they ask me to do it i would say no i'm i cannot do it find other one please because this image if i do this image like filming person who innocent one or whatever he did like getting killed under the hand of those criminals this will remind in my memory will never i n- will never get be able to get rid of it because i read that that was a very very difficult scene for you to shoot that was the most difficult part it's of the most difficult i mean it was it came to me like a gift you know they mm. just brought me i didn't ask for it i just found myself there with a the camera with Abu Osama and other leaders there and they okay do some shooting for those and they was really proud about their victory that they captured all of those people and they, they take more lands and this is like the way I was uh, I was really confused that uh, what to do here I have to capture this moment in any way if I want mm. to use it in my film or not because this is a war crime happening right now mm. in front of my eyes and those people you look at them they are really i mean 
I mean, I don't care about political. Some moment when when it's come to this moment, I said I don't care about who's behind, who fight whom. Look at like, their eyes; they are miserable. I never see something like this since like this black and white image from the Second World and from the Holocaust. And you look at them; they are really like those Jewish who take them to the Holocaust to, to burn them. What's the difference? In the midst of all the tragedies in Syria and what you have captured in your film, there are all these uh, rays of hope. For example, there is a difference between Osama and his brother Ayman. Osama, as you said, he looks up to his father. He wants to become a fighter. His idol. His idol is his father. But Ayman is a bit more disobedient. Mm. He's creative. He wants to read. Yeah. Um, he wants to go to school. Mm. And even Abu Osman says, I don't think he's going to be a good fighter. No. I think he just he, yeah, he, 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 he wants to go to school. He gave up on him. Yeah, because he spent most of the time with his mother. This part, I don't have it. Like, what's mm. the conversation between him and his mother? It wasn't allowed for me to feel. We hear their voices when Some he gets moments, injured. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, the voice of woman is not uh, allowed to be heard by yeah. strangers. This is the hope that even like 200 meters away from the father uh, upcoming caliphate, there is a normal school who teach people the poem, mathematic things about spaceship, for example, the song they are, they were singing it in the end. So how did these two worlds live next to each other? People need a normal life. They don't need this project. They don't need radicalism to control them. And they still do what they believe in. So they don't control the village. They, they just live in the village. They live in the village. But they're still in a war time. So they are now just fighting. Mm-hmm. But when they win, they will start to focus about the other part. Mm-hmm. But they didn't win. So yeah. You went and shot your documentary in the country you had left. Mm-hmm. How different was what you witnessed from what you had expected when you first embarked on this project? This is one of my nightmares, that uh, place that was prepared to be the best place, like to get rid of the dictatorship time and enter to a democracy and freedom and more. Everyone can be more active in his, in his country and in his life. This all, this dream, they are gone. Mm. And instead of the, the worth. So what is the worth? It's area are bombed all the time by Russia and Assad and in the ground there is no place for being a normal person like there is a radicalism who are growing and growing eating everything around it and the generation prepared to continue this war so what worth of this can happen everybody I know he left and some of them they get arrested and get killed and we become the nomad of the modern age. So so we split everywhere and uh, we are a person who want to have a home, who have this warmness and to have a future and to, to have a freedom. But it's not anymore possible because all the bad people are there. All those three contents of Syria, like Assad regime, the Kurdish fighters and the opposition, and all of those three bars that they are still fighting it's the worth any moment anyone can arrest you 
without any permission, without telling anyone, and he can take you somewhere where you will disappear, that you, you can, mm-hmm. can get killed. At the end of the film, you say that I am leaving... To my home. To my home. Yeah, in Berlin. Yeah. In Berlin. Yes. And, um, and you say, I'm paraphrasing, you don't recognize yes. the place yeah. that you called home. Mm-hmm. It's changed in a very bad way. So, so what is home? I mean, home, it's what you believe. It's your, your behavior, your habit, your every, every single act. You do it from the morning until the end. It's a peace. It's a place where you know that you are going back and you meet your family. And this is what I live in Berlin, mm. like my family, my son, my wife, some of my relatives, friends. They are there and they have a normal life. And they, for sure, they face difficulties. But comparing with losing your life. When you left Syria, when you were done with this project, was it for you a sense that you have lost Syria as a home? Forever. Permanently? Forever? Forever. For me, forever. Mm. I mean, life is short. I'm 40 years old. and Those people will never forgive me now or after 30 years. I will be always a target for them. If I can be an easy target, they will, uh, they will kill me. So I will not... I would not give this chance, I mean, to go to Damascus, to the Assad regime and forget all those people who get killed in his prison and all those people who take their airplanes and bomb the other neighbors and kill their neighbors to live peacefully with them, with those monsters. It cannot be happen. How it can be happen? Like their hands are full of bloods of their neighbors. It's a civil war. You know what civil war? You cannot. I don't want to be part of it. I don't want to say hello in the morning to anyone responsible for a war crime. S- I know we are. We mm. are. We are cameramen. We are journalists. You know. You see what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. They they can they can kill us anytime they want. We are the easiest target for them. I have to hide. That's all. You have been interviewed. You've been on television. You have a very active Facebook and Twitter. Does this mean you cannot go back to Syria? Yeah, I mean, for like in the government, like Assad no, regime. No, no, in the rebel-held areas. No, and then, yeah. Okay. They thought that uh, I belong to the Assad, the, to the Russian. Mm. They thought they are crazy. They thought that they saw this is atheist guy. We will want to kill him wherever we can find him. They wrote me a lot of threatening mm. letters. Different people and one of the brother, two of the brothers of his Abu Osama Blessed, don't respect your personal freedom is not a place where you have to live. Uh, what is home? You can bring your roots with you. This is this is the st- if you are strong, you have your you. For example, you have your roots with you wherever you move. It's not necessary to be in Tehran to feel that it's home. You prefer for sure. You will dreaming of that if it can be possible. But we born in this a uh, in this time of life where where our country are full of terrible and uh, bad people. You looked for some answers about the future of your country. Yeah. So did you see anything that made you hopeful? And did you find hope anywhere? I can I cannot say that there is no people like there there is a people who are fighting for the hope. People like us still there for their decisions because of their decision or because of the circumstances they cannot leave. 
they don't have the possibility to move, but they are fighting for better home. And I don't know if they can manage to have it. I don't say that it's totally end. It's never end. Look at all the history of all countries. It never can be end. They still can be resisting. Still people like making their home better place. But as I told you, like, we suffer a lot. And uh, and I tried all the time to kill the nostalgia. Mm. Like, to, to remember that the person I love, the country I love is dead. What is existing now is the cost of it. A Fathers of Sons has won the Grand Jury Prize for World Cinema Documentary at Sundance, the same award Derki earned for his previous film on Syria, Return to Homes. The 2018 jury saluted the director for his depiction of a, quote, destroyed world, a terrifying experience of war and the even more terrifying ways we, as human beings, adjust to it. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.